the moment we would stop relying only on lifting the resources off the ground to space because it's really expensive and complex, and we would start to get some resources from in space, be it asteroids or moon regolith as a reaction mass, or just using solar power, that's where the space economy will really take off and start growing exponentially because that's where I believe will be the birthplace of the real sustainable space economy when the space economy can actually feed itself with the sources needs to build more satellites and build more infrastructure there. Welcome to the Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Carolyn Bell and Andrew Maximov to explore the future of the space economy. Welcome both. It's a pleasure to have you with me on this episode, and I'm excited for you both to bring this space down to earth. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Great. Let's start with some introductions. Caroline, if we can start with you, if you can tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your experience in the space of space. Yeah, absolutely. So I am really a space nerd at heart. I didn't uh, come out of the space nerd closet as I term it until I did my first internship at NASA, where I realized that I could have a future in space. I could contribute to this that growing up, I didn't realize was something that I could work in and spend my time and my career in. And so, you know, I started out on the science side of things in astrobiology, trying to understand how we would look for life um, on other celestial bodies, but really have spent all of my career focused, focused after that on enabling us to grow the space economy. So working in market analysis and consulting, working with a lot of different companies and governments in the sector, then worked more on the physical side of things. I wanted to start being able to touch my work rather than it just being on the computer. So worked in building ground stations, ground uh, antennas to communicate with satellites around the world so that satellite operators didn't have to each build their own, but they could tap into a more global resource. Uh, And what I do now is working on the sustainability of space, working with satellite operators to plan ahead, make sure that we have access to space, not just today and tomorrow, but really for the the infinite future ahead. And, and we can continue to benefit from this resource to working to make sure that we, we change the way that we operate in space to get a lot more out of it. Great. Can you double click on Astroscale where you are now as a director of advanced systems? What do they do? So at Astroscale, our vision is to enable the safe and sustainable development of space for today and for future generations. And so what we do is address this sustainability challenge in a few different ways. And and how we define sustainability is not just the traditional view of environmental sustainability of of the space environment itself, but also the economic piece. How do we make sure that we're designing companies, that we're designing satellites in a way that really delivers sustainable value, whether that's for a company, academia, national security, whatever it is, but really making sure we we get the most out of, of everything we put in space. And so the prongs that, that we've approached for that challenge are active debris removal. Today, there are millions of pieces of space debris, space junk that have been left in orbit. And each of those presents a risk to satellites that are operational today, but a collision risk that could damage or destroy them if those, those two objects were to hit each other. So we are going after those large pieces of debris. We're going to send robotic servicing spacecraft to go up 
dock with them. They weren't prepared for it. They weren't designed to be grabbed in space, but we're going to find a way to grab them and then bring them down so that we remove that threat. Uh, We're also working with satellite operators to prepare for the end of life of their satellites. If they design a satellite that's going to operate for five years, but then something fails and they're not able to bring it down, bring it out of orbit, uh, we have a solution to go up, grab that, bring it out of orbit. And then sort of on the flip side of that, that end of life is, is extending life. You know, if we design a satellite to operate for 15 years, but the only thing that fails after 15 years is that it runs out of gas, let's just find a way to keep it in orbit, keep it operating rather than continue to launch more things in space and leave more things in space. Um, so that's really what we focus on. We definitely have a, a much broader long-term roadmap that I'm working on, but, but that's the core of where we're at today. It's really cool that this company is focused on this. It looked like there was like 250 employees or more, but the, so we think about designing the future with intent, a company already focused on some of the problems of the future, given that here we are now, but it's, the space is going to explode. You know, we're going to go to infinity and beyond and it's only going to get bigger. But so how do we address some of those challenges today? It's, it's awesome to hear that your company's already working on this. Maybe the future garbage uh, truck, in a sense. Yeah, (laughs) we call ourselves the space sweepers. Um, That's our logo. So that's what we want to work on. And and I mean, yeah, so we do want the space to explode, but not objects in space. That's the main goal, just the economy. Yeah. Andrew, over to you. Can you tell us more about yourself and your experience in the space? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I have a completely different background and completely different angle at space, but I guess, you know, it would be beneficial for the audience. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, first of all, I'm a startup owner and founder of Startup. The company is called Precious Payloads. We're building the software that makes it easy to, quite easy to uh, plan and execute custom space missions. So we are a remote first team of roughly 20 people across four different countries. And we work globally. Like we help uh, satellite developers around the world to ship their satellites to space up to 12 months faster by basically helping them to streamline and fix their supply chains. And on my personal background, you know, I've always been amazed by the by the space exploration. And the question was always for me, you know, how the space exploration can help us answer the questions such as where, where we're coming from, are we alone in the universe, and help us better understand the Earth and its surroundings. And that's where I ended up getting a master's degree in microelectronics, really working, you know, on like assembler code for communication subsystems for the satellites. And then just off after university, I started my startup career. So I've never, you know, I entirely skipped the corporate world, never been employed in any, any company. So right, you know, full steam ahead, jumped into startups and bootstrapped and, and sold to B2B software startups before I understood that, hey, you know, it doesn't really excite me. And I wanted, literally, I wrote myself like a one pager in 2015 and told myself, okay, how can I reconnect or how can I connect to the space industry and what I can bring on the table using the skill set that I have, which is building beautiful B2B software that can automate complexity really well. And that's how Precious Payload has been born in 2017. Awesome. So just broadly, can you tell us more about the space economy today? Carolyn, can we start with you and then we'll, we'll move over to Andrew? Sure. So if we if we take a really broad view of the space economy, the, the players that are active, I mean, you have commercial industry, and those could be the large companies that most of us are familiar with, the Boeings, the Lockheed Martins, but many, many small companies today um, that have been founded in the last 10 years. We have a perfect example on the, on the podcast today of that. Civil government, so the NASA's, the NOAA's that we traditionally think of, 
national security, and then academia or or nonprofit. So that's really who's active in space. In terms of of how the economy is structured, I mean, the value chain is is pretty basic. It's it's building, designing and building satellites. It's launching them. That piece that we all get excited about seeing a rocket launch. It's operating them in space, which is a pretty basic approach right now. I mean, you you launch something into space and you never interact with it again. It's sending data down to the earth or it's providing communication services. And then the last piece is that interconnection between the the satellite operator and then the end user, because it, it's very rare for for that to be direct. There are a couple cases, um, but but not a lot. And so because of that, a lot of us aren't really aware of how much we use the space economy, because there's always that that interconnection. But you know what the space economy does: communications, not just like satellite TV that we often think about, but anytime we're watching a live event or live sports, all of that's being being transmitted over over satellite navigation, timing, capabilities, a lot of Earth observation. We've been seeing a lot of examples in the last few months of, of what you can really see from space. Uh, but there's so many elements to the space economy. It's really hard to to wrap up, but we'll see if Andrew has a has a, a more specific way to jump into that. Sure. What I also often see is that people that try to understand like what is the total value of the space economy, they also would add, you know, GPS-enabled companies there as well. So that's how, you know, sometimes you you have Uber and Lyft there as well, like as part of the space economy, because, hey, you know, without GPS, it would not be possible to have this company. So, yeah, but I think Carolyn made a really good, like, overarching summary of what are the key components there. I would just add that I think the growing piece is also because, hey, again, I'm coming also from B2B, B2B software side. It's the companies that are trying to analyze and create insights out of the communication of observation data that is coming from satellites. And it's becoming also a bigger and bigger size of the market because those are the companies that are actually connecting this all space infrastructure to the end user, like terrestrial businesses, governments, et cetera. So that's also, I would say, a really important part of the space economy. Where is that money primarily coming from? Is that like launching satellites and kind of supporting satellites or is, are there other kind of, what are the what are the big pieces of that? So, I mean, government funding is a, a big piece of that that goes into manufacturing and launch and, and operations, but really it's everything we just talked about. I mean, the, the communications and the, the GPS side is a huge part of the value that's derived from space. And it gets to the point when we're trying to quantify the space economy, right? This used to be my job and it was always tricky of where do you put a barrier as to where the space economy ends and where maybe more terrestrial begins. So that point of anything enabled by location-based services is coming from GPS or, you know, we have other government constellations that are that are similar to GPS. Do we count those? Do we count all of that? Do we count all of the, the chipsets that are receiving that data? Banking is enabled by GPS. Do we include the whole banking industry? So it really becomes this cascading question of like, how do you define what's part of that and what isn't? But it really is a mix of, of commercial and, and government to get to that total where we're at today. What are some common misconceptions about the space economy? I guess like the biggest one is that, hey, you know, like people say that, people often say that space is so expensive and why do we need even to launch all these rockets in a really expensive space stations, et cetera, when we just can spend the same money to fix the real problems here on Earth? And I think that's the greatest misconception and greatest, I would say, yeah, like disbelief in space in general from, you know, like a lot of uh, countries, countries, citizens. And yeah, I guess the way to answer to that would be, yeah, that's, I would say, majority of the companies and scientists and engineers that are working in space industry, they actually 
their mission is to help accelerate technology development that would really help with the real like terrestrial problems here. And you know, if you look back in the history of the last 50 years, you would see that dozens, if not hundreds, of the technologies that were developed for space industry actually became our day-to-day like products and services that we use and we don't even think where they're coming from. So I guess, yeah, I would say that that's, for me, the biggest misconception about the space. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a, a huge lack of awareness as to the true value that space provides to everyday life. I talk with my colleagues all the time about how we want an app that you could load on your phone and it would show you how many satellites you're using at any given time for the different parts of your day. It's a huge number. And I mean, even when we look at the like core economics of it, NASA has done a variety of studies on, you know, for every dollar that the U.S. government puts into to NASA programming, you know, there's this range of like seven to, to $20 that get returned to the U.S. economy. So it is a really significant return on investment. And even to the point that sometimes it's hard to identify what those true spinoffs are of what the value is. I think one of the other big misconceptions that riles me up is a lot of the talk lately about space is just about billionaires in space, right? What are, it's such a small bit of what's going on in space, right? Are there billionaires doing things in space? Yes, absolutely. But there's so much more to the spectrum of what we're doing and, and most of the, so many more important things of, about what we're doing. So I want us to be able to expand that dialogue beyond just it being a billionaire's playground. Because for me, space is truly our opportunity to enhance life on earth for everyone. And that to me is not just all humans, right? I think it really, space really enables us to engage with our planet in a different way. It can really deliver value back to so many parts of the the terrestrial ecosystem. That's cool. So speaking of billionaires, you know, Elon is such a big player in the space. Is he a little lunatic or is he like the god? Is he the Zeus of the space economy? What are your guys' thoughts on Elon? <laughs> I think he's trying to be a bit of both, honestly, um, from that question. <laughs> I mean, there's there's no doubt that what he has done with SpaceX has driven immense value to the space economy. You know, what SpaceX has been able to achieve in terms of increasing the frequency of launch and reducing the cost in putting uh, reusability into launch has been huge. So I think that sort of impact and and the potential that that offers to the rest of the industry is undeniable. I just think it's a question of many of the other entities that are at play in the industry also offering value that often doesn't get perceived because there's pretty big personality in the room. <laughs> right. I would also add to that that so it's not only Elon, it's not only, you know, those like CEOs of these companies, there's actually real operators behind those personalities. You know, like Van Shuttle was actually running the operational space and, and she makes everything that we see possible where, you know, Elon, of course, is working on fundraising, inspiring, you know, on the vision and mission and pushing it forward. But there's really like dozens, hundreds, thousands of engineers and managers and, you know, the, like people who are pushing it forward every day. So yeah, absolutely. But I would, I would totally agree that without space, it wouldn't be where we are today. What are some sort of, unheard of industries that are making the best use of space to kind of expand their business. Any thoughts there? Like we talked about some of the majors, but what are some of the micros? So there are a lot of little ones that, that you, well, not little industries, but, but use space in a different way. So if we look at the finance industry, um, right, trading on Wall Street, when some of their interest in space came from satellite communications that could reduce the latency at which they received market data relative to other investors. And even if it's just a tiny amount ahead of time, it allows their algorithms to you know, drive better returns on those investments. Often we don't think about them using space. Or if we look at 
the insurance industry relies on a lot of earth observation data and analytics to be able to assess risk when they're making investments or when they're making reinvestments. Stores, retail, urban planning uses a lot of space-based data, things like that in it as well. But I think there, there's so much potential for additional industries to use space. Yeah. I would also add to that that my favorite like business case that is slowly coming to to market now is the idea of autonomous cars fleets having their own like small satellite constellations to provide connectivity outside of urban urban areas. I think that's really exciting because this concept has been around for I don't know like a decade, but most recently, I guess one of the Chinese companies that actually announced the plans of doing that, you know, like imagine, you know, a car manufacturing company having their own fleet of satellites. And yeah, I also recently read the biography of Sam Walton from Walmart. And I actually realized that in 1987, Walmart has built their own satellite constellation to provide like real-time connectivity of like exchange of business data between different centers. And I guess, you know, like history appears itself where, again, I see, I totally see a business case for like, as Caroline said, you know, insurance companies or training come having their own satellites, maybe like not a full constellation, but a satellite or two that would provide a unique data set, which is not available for the others. And I think the connected cars manufacturers is also a good example of having your own space asset in space would make sense. How important are, you know, robotics, AI, and kind of drones to the, the future of the space economy? We have a lot of technology sort of evolving right now, and, and all that sort of can, we see a lot of innovative combinations that, you know, spring up new industries. But as we think about uh, some of these new, new spaces that are really growing quite rapidly, much like space, you know, where costs are kind of coming down and innovation is going up, like, how do you see some of these spaces, you know, industries and technologies impacting the space economy? So I'll jump on that. I mean, what we do at AstroScale involves all three of those that you just mentioned, robotics, autonomy and AI, drone technology, and, and how we can apply that to space. You know, when we're talking about the segments of the space economy, one of the big gaps that exist today that, that we're starting to fill is delivering value in space. So as of today, once you launch a satellite, it is on its own until it dies. And there's nothing you can do about it unless you can, you know, send a command to fix from the ground. But that's a that's a limited set. What we need is the ability to offer value from an, something in space to another part of the in-space economy. And that will absolutely leverage. You know, robotics is key to that for our ability to keep satellite in operation or once we get to the step of being able to repair problems with satellites on orbit so that they can continue operating. Advanced robotics are going to be key to that, having a lot of different, you know, end effectors, different bits and, and pieces on the end of robotic arms to be able to implement those changes that are needed. And then autonomy to be able to manage all of these interacting spacecraft so that you don't have to have, you know, operators on the ground and the fixed ratio of operators on the ground to spacecraft in orbit. If we want to scale the space economy, we need to step away from having human operators involved in in every satellite. And so we're already seeing that with constellations being run autonomously, but we need to see that with with other pieces as well. There's so much potential too for technologies that are developed and tested terrestrially to be used in space. I mean, sure there are unique challenges that we face. The radiation environment in space is totally different from on Earth, but depending on how long you want something to operate or the extent to which you can protect it, the ability to use what we call commercial off-the-shelf capabilities that might come from automotive or might come from drone Using those technologies in space, it does two things. One, it can reduce the cost of what we're doing in space because those are usually much lower cost capabilities than a bespoke 
space solution, but it also increases the speed at which we can deploy new innovations in space. Traditionally, the the timeline to put anything in space is is very long. We're often seen as a super high-tech next-generation industry, but we're pretty far in the past because it takes a long time to design something, test it, get heritage, put it on space. But if we can use le- if we can leverage innovations from other industries, we can shorten that and really increase what we can do in space on a more rapid timeline. I would probably add to that really quick that, yeah, again, from the software perspective, I really see that a lot of the applications that are being developed right now on the satellites would not be possible without, let's say, the AI. Because imagine, you know, you have like a hyperspectral camera that you put on the satellite, which happens already like this year and next year, there's more and more hyperspectral capabilities being launched in space. One picture that you take with such a camera would weigh around four gigabytes per file. And so you're looking at terabytes per day, per satellite per day, and imagine you have like 50, 100 of those, right? And so a lot of these things uh, would not even work if you couldn't pre-process the data on the satellite or, you know, like use onboard processing to analyze the images even before you beam them down to, you know, AWS, cl- uh, AWS clouds on the ground. So yeah, like those applications are only enabled because there's AI and some machine learning involved there. In addition to the conversation we had with our guests on today's episode, we asked another expert to provide their insights on the future. I'm Adrian Manjuka, and I'm the Vice President of Infrastructure at Voyager Space. Uh, That basically means I work on our space station portfolio. Infrastructure basically means these big long-term investments that you see return on based upon the value they add to services. So essentially, infrastructure is some big fixed capital asset. Think, you know, roads, airports, power grids, etc. that people depend on to make money doing something else. Basically, I describe myself as, as kind of a space economist in this role with some added subtleties that I have to help figure out how to keep the revenue flowing. Besides from that, I was the principal investigator for the NASA funded Nanorax Leo commercialization study. I've worked at the Department of State, the World Bank, and I've traveled quite a bit. So that's a little bit about me. These ideas are as far away or as close as we want them to be. I need your audience to understand that the problems hindering our exploration of the cosmos are not technological, really. They're economic and political. It is a matter of political will how much we are willing to invest in game-changing technologies, just as it is a matter of political will to solve some of today's most pressing social and environmental challenges. Now, the Apollo program showed us beyond the shadow of a doubt that when the right global exigencies align, a nation can find the will to fund the most extraordinary endeavors, ones which continue to provide materially enriching benefits to our civilization today. And we can progress in enormous leaps if we choose to, and for slightly over a decade, we chose to go to the moon. And beyond wildest hope, we accomplished it for all humankind. And the point is here that technologies you mentioned are already here. And if they're not here, they're just around a corner. You know, just as an acorn, you know, awaits the water to grow into a mighty oak. The seeds of these ideas are awaiting funding, attention, and ultimately human will to become reality. 
So if you care about this stuff and you're wondering why it's taking so long, yeah, sure, you know, get a degree in STEM, that's really important, but also vote, demand change. What else is sort of accelerating this space right now? So we got the technology helping accelerate. We have some of the private investment that's coming in, you know, a lot of entrepreneurialism. What else do you guys see that is accelerating uh, this economy? Yeah, I think like what really enables, like accelerates the the speed and velocity of new concepts and new business models coming to the space industry is just the amount of launch vehicles, launch capabilities that, that are coming online like every couple of months. I think it's really exciting because prior to that, a lot of missions would need to wait for years for suitable, affordable launch opportunity. And now, you know, like, between 2016 and 2025, there would be like dozen, if not, if not two dozens of new launch companies come to market. And of course, that industry would be disrupted again when SpaceX launches their Starship spacecraft, you know, like as, as a means of transporting the, the really he- heavy lift uh, satellite to space, because that would again change the whole equation of what type of satellites you can afford to launch. And I think, you know, by I imagine that by 2025, I hope that the new companies coming to market would stop uh, decreasing the size of satellites and start really building bigger satellites because the whole trend has been like, let's make them smaller. Yeah, like let's make this CubeSats. But CubeSats are not that exciting because they have very limited capabilities. And it's where I really think and I hope that when with the advent of new launch systems such as Starship or Nuclean from the origin, people would stop making satellites smaller would actually make them bigger so they can do more and do some crazy ideas that have been in backlog for decades. Yeah, I agree. And, and we are seeing, you know, what had been, you know, the industry started with small sats back in the 60s, small sats, and then we got bigger. And then in the early 2010s, we got smaller again, and now we're starting to get bigger. But I think there's value in all of those sizes. So I, I think it's, it's, we, we don't want to think about only large satellites offering value or, you know, some people on the flip side only want to talk about CubeSats. It's really getting the right satellite for your needs. And those needs may change over time. One of the, the accelerators, really back to your, to your question, Jeff, of, of what's allowing us to do more in the industry is that we can launch individual components that we want to test on small sites at a more rapid pace. So we don't have to wait for everything to be ready to put on a three-ton satellite but we can, as we develop something, launch it, test it, get feedback, and then improve it for the next iteration. And so that's really helping us move faster, even if then the ultimate solution is to have a, a couple hundred kilogram satellite rather than a small sat. But it also needs to be bespoke to where you're trying to offer value. Sometimes you need a larger satellite, right? If you want to have better resolution, you need a bigger, you might need a bigger satellite depending on, on the imaging, just because physics still exists. You can't make everything tiny, but for some capabilities, having a small sat works. But through all of that, we need to be responsible on how we're planning. So, you know, there's so much discussion lately about constellations, mega constellations, you know, not just tens or hundreds of satellites, but thousands of satellites, which can offer really unique solutions, can offer wonderful coverage of the earth, but we just have to do it in a way that we are removing those satellites at end of life so they don't present a risk and also being careful about how often we replace them. So one of the other trends we've seen is that people are launching satellites with shorter lifetimes. So maybe they only want it to operate for three years, for five years, because then the cost profile of what you need to put into that satellite physically to protect it from the space environment is lower. 
And that can be okay as long as we don't leave those objects in space, where then we're launching 10,000 satellites every five years and they just stack on top of each other. Yeah, Fresh, we worked with a couple of companies on, on space-oriented things. One was a with Hyundai, a walking car kind of concept. I don't know if you've seen it, but hopefully a future space vehicle. I know it gets a little dusty up there on the moon, but hopefully we're you know going back there at some point. And then Mars later on with the help of Elon. We've also... We were, did some design thinking work for a construction company that wanted to, to to build some self-organizing sort of materials that could build things in space. But one of the companies we were excited about working with and didn't get the opportunity to was was Planetary Resources. We met with them. I know they got a billion in funding. They wanted some help with some with some workflow software, actually, to think about how they could speed up uh, their processes. Uh, but we didn't get the opportunity because they, I believe, they died. So curious about this sort of concept of, you know, asteroid mining, you know, back, they were probably developing the, the $500 million satellites or, I don't know, tens of millions for the small CubeSats that we saw in their, in their space, but maybe they would do a lot better now. That being said, you know, is that, do we see that as like a viable, you know, economy, like asteroid mining? I can pick this one up. Yeah, because I had, uh, had an opportunity to meet with a team watch them grow, watch them die. And, you know, I've been with them like for the entire cycle and still friends with a lot of people from there. I guess what's, what the history of that company tells me is, you know, it is and it was and, and it will be an extremely tough question for these companies that have really the visions for decades. You know, when, when you're trying to raise the money for something that might be profitable in like 20, 30 years from now, <laughs> the biggest challenge that you have is is to how to commercialize the technology that you, you are developing along the way. And I think, you know, by in 2017, there were like two, I would say, competing companies, uh, D-Space Industries and Planet Resources, right, that were claiming to be that asteroid mining companies. And I think like D-Space Industry, thanks to the engineering team, they early on said, hey, in order to get to asteroids sustainably, you know, like and affordably, we would need to build the water-enabled thruster, like propellant system that uses water as propellant, because in the future, you could mine this water from the asteroids and then use it to refuel the, the satellites, right? And playing the resources, they didn't have this proxy plan in the beginning. And then when the new investors told me, hey, listen, like we actually want to see them some revenue along the way, they tried to sell the idea of building the hyperspectral satellites that would use their camera systems to survey the asteroids by fly fly by missions just to survey, you know, what minerals can be mined from there. And they tried then to pivot to, you know, build this hyperspectral release for Earth, but it was too late. It was too late and they already burned so much money trying to actually build the first like asteroid prospecting mission. And so yeah, like and again, I guess the the companies that are successful today, at least in securing the, the first revenue and, and investor money while keeping this long-term visions are the ones that really early on from day one built the systems and business models that enable them to get sizable revenue along the way and find the real like use cases for the technology today here on Earth. Like a good example is the relativity space you know, that at some point of time, when they started to raise like hundreds of million dollars, if you look at that pitch deck, they actually say, hey, we are a 3D printing company that happens to have a rocket as a first byproduct of that 3D printer. But they actually found a lot of like niche applications in having the largest 3D printer on the planet to print other stuff as well. So that's a good example. And their mission still says we want to build like a self-sustaining colony on Mars. 
looking at the amount of capital to deploy some of these big things. It's We've seen so much investment go towards more software-centric capabilities because it can require less capital to roll out your preliminary product versus building something in space. And so looking at how do we get to the 20-year, to the 30-year vision, right, to that trillion-dollar space economy in 2040, one of the things we're missing in space is infrastructure on which to build these capabilities. If we look at how the terrestrial economy has grown, we've seen primarily government, but also some private enterprise invest in infrastructure to to provide that that base layer on which everything else can grow. And so I think that's something that we really need. And infrastructure is expensive, right? Building a highway system across the US, building a train system is expensive, but it's something that then is the foundation for moving things around. And that's how you deliver value. What will the space economy be in 20 or 40 years? First of all, I I hope and genuinely believe that a space economy will exist in 20 to 40 years. I think enough political exigency exists today to build permanent crewed space platforms, space stations. I have the good fortune to be closely involved with one of those, Starlab. While I agree that humans are super demanding in terms of resources in space where everything is always trying to kill us and robots might be cheaper, I believe that humans' neediness is also kind of a blessing, right? It creates demand for ancillary services. Think about it. Resupply, repair, maintenance, entertainment, generally stuff to do, all the things that make up a human life. The demand that's generated merely to keep people alive doesn't even get into the opportunities that open volume on orbit presents to folks on Earth. Open volume like space platforms that that are built for researchers. So you, you got research, innovation, and discovery enabled by space. Where permanent presence in space exists, so exists demand both in space for supplies from Earth and on Earth for content and goods generated on orbit. And where demand exists, natural supply follows. As supply follows, information about price spreads. And it is our task to create a policy environment to both facilitate that and keep it open, free, and fair for all participants. I think we've taken the first step by beginning programs like NASA's CDFF, or Commercial Destinations Free Flyers, efforts, of which Voyager is a part. And as we progress down that path, I think the space economy will become more real. Let's talk about that future a little bit more. So we're here today, but, you know, in, in space, you think probably think in terms of, you know, decades, right? But what do we anticipate the space economy being like 20 to 40 years from now? We know that it's predicted to be big, but what are some thoughts about what that future looks like? My vision is... Uh... Maybe a bit more sci-fi. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, where we can get, if we really address the problems as, as we've identified them today, which involves a lot of different players across the industry, across academia, across policy, we can get into that. But I see this future of space where there's a more robust, dynamic, interconnected activity in space. Right now, satellites are out there on their own. But I think for us to deliver more value, we need to be able to provide services to those spacecraft. We need to have different orbiting platforms that enable much more research to occur in space that then can drive value back on Earth, whether that's to cosmetics or biopharma or or whatever that application might be. Having those established resources 
being able to lower the risk it's a huge thing that investors come to of like, there's so much risk involved in space. So, you know, in 20 and 30 years, understanding that better, managing that better. But yeah, I really envision this sort of buzzing space economy where I see satellites moving around autonomously, servicing others, having resources in space, having an outpost on the moon. There's so much potential. And it's also going to create new applications in space. You know, as we've moved over time, it started with communications, which is great. In the 90s, we saw companies say, wow, we could also take pictures from space. And there's so much analytics that that drives back on Earth. What we've been able to achieve with GPS, what we've been able to achieve with asset tracking, right? Understand which ships are where. So there's so many new untapped things that could exist in the space economy in 30 years uh, that it's almost hard to envision really what those could be. I'll add that that I think if you just look at, let's say, what the future can hold for a space economy for the next 20, in the next 20 years, you know, there's like two things. First is there's a lot, there would be a lot of incremental updates on existing systems. We'll have like bigger rockets, smarter satellites, more constellations, more debris, less debris, et cetera, et cetera. But I think where, I think there's one piece of, I would say technology or the business model that would really unlock the exponential growth of variety of different business models. And that's where if, we as humanity can tackle the problem of in-situ resource utilization in a very like small application. You know, it could be like, hey, let's build a solar power station in space that would, you know, power our satellites, for example. And I think like what I'm trying to explain here is that the moment we would stop relying only on lifting the resources off the ground to space, because which is really expensive and complex, and we would start to get some resources from in space, be it asteroids or moon regolith as a reaction mass, or, you know, just using solar power, that's where the space economy will really take off and start growing exponentially, because that's where I believe will be the birthplace of the real sustainable space economy, when the space economy can actually feed itself with the sources needs to build more satellites and build more infrastructure there. And maybe literally feed itself from sort of a uh, cannibalistic approach. I want to see the circular economy in space where we take debris and turn it into something else, right? You take debris, melt it down, turn it into feedstock, 3D print it into something new. Yeah, 100%. That's cool to think about. Will Amazon be up there? I mean, we got Blue Origin, so can I get like Amazon Prime Space and like, you know, get some $200 milk or something like that? Or Sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's a the brilliant book called Artemis yeah. by the author of Martian. And there, like, it's the story of the city on moon where the currency, the actual currency that they trade with each other on the, in the moon city is the equivalent of launching goods to the moon that delivered from Earth to moon. Like, they trade in grams that they could, you know, you could send something from Earth to, to, to the moon. So they actually, you know, it's a very funny story and it drives the imagination forward and how it could work to deliver there. Yeah, the currency uh, would be interesting any other thoughts on like what could be um, we talked about the sci-fi reality and sometimes the movies the books we read actually do paint some realistic you know ideas and sometimes they're not realistic too but any other sort of uh, uh visions that you guys have i would add to that that's i always particularly enjoy the the space technologies that are actually visible you know like to naked eyes such as you know like deployment of starling satellites i got you know like dozens of calls from my friends around the world, when they say, hey, you know, what's going on in the sky? You know, we see this, like, you know, big, like, 
link of the chain of satellites there. Like what's, what's going on, right? And I see, and I think that's another thing that's, you know, it would, people would, would certainly enjoy looking at and, you know, think more about the space economy is when it would be normal to have some normal products like B2C consumer products, part of those, part of which were manufactured in space. And I think, you know, there's, because there's a number of applications and a number of products and materials that are benefit from being manufactured in space, like fiber optic cables or, you know, some other parts of the traditional supply chains of the products that we use today. And I really, you know, I would, I would really, I'm really looking forward to the moment where, you know, you, you get this shipment from Amazon and then it's sad, like, oh, like this, this piece of technology has been manufactured in space and was brought down to earth on like a space capsule. And not like, you know, not, not carried on the scientific lab, such as the space station, but actually went off an infection plants, autonomous infection plants in lower of orbit and then delivers to some, you know, sea platform in like a small capsule and then actually went to consumers through like Amazon, or whatever. Got it. It's instead of two day delivery, it's 2000 day delivery, but we're going <laughs> to get some goods from Amazon from space. The, the notion of space sending goods down here. I've heard of, you know, obviously mining, you're talking about technology, biopharma, you know, there's th- that environment sort of like enabling certain things that kind of come the opposite direction. That's really interesting to think about. Good. Um, let's talk about the ethics, the ESG side of space. Like, how do we build, how do we be thoughtful here? Obviously, Caroline, your whole company is sort of centered around this, eth- like the ethics and equity of space. What thoughts do you have around this area? Yeah, it's a big area that I think we as an industry need to look at ourselves and address before we, or as we move forward, really. There's a lot that we can do on the ESG side in terms of contributing to terrestrial companies understanding ESG. There's a lot of monitoring that can happen from space to to verify that those metrics are being met. But many people in the space industry stop there um, rather than looking at ourselves and how we can also implement some of those, those same things. There are a number of challenges. I think part of it is by listening. You know, we have a an industry where we have a lot of wonderful leaders who have a lot of great experience in the industry, but I think we also need to spend more time listening to university students about what they're interested in, what challenges they face, listening to early career people and their perspectives on the future. Um, so really, you know, balancing out where we're trying to to understand what that vision could be and what priorities are, what changes we need, what struggles we're seeing. You know, there has been this loss of talent, right? We have a dripping pipeline as you go from high school to university through early career, where we lose a lot of the diverse perspectives that can offer value. Um, And so I think addressing that is helpful. One of the other things I think we really need to do is engage people beyond the space industry. We have been insular almost intentionally as an industry for so long. You know, we have these phrases, space is hard, or, you know, rocket scientists are like the epitome of intelligence. I mean, we really offset ourselves to something special in the world where really we need to integrate with the entire, you know, terrestrial economy and in society and and bring in different, different people, different viewpoints. Do we need brilliant engineers? Yes, absolutely. But we also need brilliant communicators. We need storytellers. We need people who are really good at finance and business to figure out ways to make the the economy more, more effective, more profitable, broaden it out. So we really need to bring people from other industries in, and I think open up ourselves a little bit more to make that more equitable. And then there's another whole layer to that, which is how do we engage the global community, right? Space is this really unique place where 
we as a as a world all share one environment that we want to operate in and benefit from. It's not like airspace where you can really define above a country, okay, this is American airspace or this is, you know, the distance from the shore for sea space. Space is fully shared once we're up there. And so how do we make sure that we have equitable access to that? And it's not just the countries that were there first, right? It's not just the U.S. or the former USSR that that were there first and really established dominance and and have thousands of satellites in orbit. How do we enable those countries that are newer to space, right, that are launching their first satellite, that they can still have access to that? How do we do that? There's a lot of conversation that needs to happen. It's not an easy problem, but it's one that that really for, I think, for us to hit this trillion dollar economy in a way that's not a uh, one of those terrifying futures that we see in sci-fi movies, uh, <laughs> yeah. we really need to address that that global problem as well. That makes sense. Seems like things could get, you know, could go one way or another easily. And so really designing with intent, having those conversations, br- building bridges, having, making sure we have good representation is really important to that future together. It's key. Yeah, we can get dystopian real quick and I don't want to see us go down that path, but I, I already see some tendencies toward that if we don't uh, nip them in the bud. I think in my own experience, uh, having worked with organizations, startups, and governments in more than 25 countries now, I think that what I see is that, first of all, they're like the industry is shaped by the, you know, newcomers to the space industry. And those are mainly the young professionals, the engineers, the people who just, you know, just finished their master's degrees. And I think it's crucial to, to enable them, A, to learn from the past, because, you know, the commercial space industry has been around for, what, 30, 40 years now, at least. And there have been already a few cycles, economical cycles there. And there's a lot of studies that, you know, the younger generation just doesn't know. You know, I, I learn something new every week through like talking to the people in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And second thing is that there are a number of organizations out there that have this global ecosystem of promoting the space for the peaceful use. And I would, you know, I always recommend people to look for, you know, International Space University. I think, Caroline, you know, you were part of that community as well. Like SGC, Space Generation Advisor Council, the SEDS, which is Students for Space Exploration, I think, and UNUSA, which is United United Nations Organization. So like an OCSQ World Foundation and the IEC conference that takes place every October. So those, for me, like are five or six organizations that really shape the mindsets and the ethical frameworks that then are being carried forward to commercial organizations, startups, and, you know, governments. And I, and I would really pay attention to what that agenda there and is it inclusive and how it's, you know, how it talks about the ethical problems. That's where I would focus on. Really interesting to hear your guys' emphasis on some of the younger generation and the mindsets and the inclusivity. But it makes sense if we think about the future and we're like, these things take, you know, these advances take a long time. It's like that next generation coming into power or to influence or to capital or to collaboration, right? It's like you, you we're kind of, we want to set up that generation for maybe more success than we've had in the past. So looking at the past, thinking about the future, that, that resonates. Yeah, I think it's, it's that next generation. And then it's also the populations, the communities that haven't been invited to the space community so far that have a really unique perspective, right? Unique challenges that they face. So we talk a lot about you know, gender and racial diversity lacking in the industry. Another big one that that I'm really passionate about is disability, um, right? Disabled people have been excluded from the space industry for a long time. And each of those communities 
offer such a unique perspective of the challenges they face because it's undeniable that everything we do in space is is a challenge. And so the more perspectives we have to how to overcome those really will help us get to a better solution ultimately. Just a couple more questions before we wrap up. What personal goals do you both have kind of being connected to this space? It's it's unique. It's also awesome. But do you have any kind of personal goals of like, hey, I, I'd like to go to space sometime. That's, that's one of my personal goals. Yeah. I'd love to hear any thoughts there. Uh, so I'm going to go with two goals, one that's easier to measure than the other one. So, I mean, the reason that I'm in the space industry is I want to enable us to get to get more out of space and to build this future space economy that I envision that offers value to everyone on earth. And so that's why I choose roles in the industry that I think allow me to enable others to be successful. Hard to measure. <laughs> but one of the other goals, I mean, something I would love to see in my lifetime is that, you know, whether it's a, a space agency or, you know, a private astronaut entity, not talking tourism, I'm talking, you know, real hard research that's happening in space. I would love to see a disabled astronaut go to space. So if I can help that path happen. Yeah, my sort of also two goals would be, you know, number one is just my goal is to help at least 5,000 space missions get to space and fulfill their mission goals over the next 30 years. You know, because I think that, you know, if in 30 years, you know, there would be like 50 companies that said, hey, you know, you made it all possible. We actually were able to build some sustainable uh, business models in space. And, you know, if I could contribute, contribute to that future where we better understand our role in space and, you know, where the humanity is coming from, that would make me happy. And the second goal is what I'm, you know, always optimizing for and dreaming about is how to create real jobs in space how to create, you know, like not astronaut-like, but actually capitalism-driven jobs in space. Because the moment we will get like first commercial, you know, like jobs in space, we'll get competition. Competition will, will also increase the number of jobs there. The real like people who would commute, you know, like for shifts to work in space, they would need more services to make their life easier. It would give the birth to the like services industry and product industry. And I really want to help those businesses, if not, you know, build my second business in that scene where we could create the first real commercial jobs in space. Awesome. The market will be growing in the future. There's going to be more jobs uh, supporting that. If I have a full-time career and I, but I want to get involved, you know, so I already have sort of my full-time, I'm probably not going to go back and kind of get re-educated. Any thoughts about how I, how I could get involved in this, like the space economy where it's, you know, Maybe it's more part-time. I think there are a lot of different ways you can do that. And it depends on sort of the scale in which you want to engage. There are a lot of associations that one can join. I mean, there are a lot of just events about space that if you want to learn more about what companies are doing, you could pop into those, whether they're virtual or in person, depending on where you're located, um, to be part of that, that space community. I mean, that's what I did early in my career when I was working in science education, but wanted to stay a little bit tied to space specifically. I volunteered for this group called Yuri's Night that was trying to celebrate humans in space around the world. And so I loved the global nature of it. I loved how celebratory it was, but it was, it was just volunteer as many hours as I wanted. So that's one route. There's also so many opportunities to work in space without being formally educated in something space related. I think that's definitely a myth that we need to go after um, because some of the best people that I know who work full time in space had a career that was in a totally different field up until the point they entered. If you have a passion for space, we can teach you on the job what you need to know. So, you know, if you work in accounting, but you want to do something in space, yeah, come on over and then you can be part of it. Or if you just have a technical aptitude, even if you're not an aerospace engineer, 
I know some wonderful people who've become aerospace engineers by training on the job. So, you know, there's so much potential. So I'm always happy to talk to people if they're interested in coming into space and they don't know how to do it. I'll give you some ideas. We want you to be here. One last question for you, Andrew. If you had, let's say, like a cool billion to kind of, you know, invest, where would you be investing it right now in sort of the space economy? A billion. I think, to be honest with you, like a big chunk of that would go buying the secondary shares in the secondary markets, shares of SpaceX. So I really believe, you know, there's a market there and you can actually get a good exposure to the secondary market there. And I really believe that, you know, the the scale of this company could be like over a couple of trillion dollars in the next couple of years or decades. So yeah, like a large chunk would go there, definitely. And then, you know, aside from that, you have now over 15 or 20 publicly traded stocks that are linked to what we call a new space. So like innovations in space, they're not performing good yet, but if you want to bet on the space, that's the place to go. And I think in terms of the startups, the best place maybe to invest in startups in space is Y Combinator them. They, they are quite bullish on space and every batch, they have at least four or five companies doing hardcore space stuff. So, yeah. Well, it's been great having you both. Appreciate your leadership, your passion for, for space, for both shooting for the moon here and, and for your insights and wisdom in, in sharing with our guests. Um, we loved having you on the show and look forward to keeping tabs as we work on the future together. Absolutely. It was a great time. Thanks. Thanks for spreading the word about space, Jeff. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for The Future of an Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.